This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 12, Episode 51. This is Writing Excuses, Constructed Languages with Dirk Elzinga. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Mary. I'm Beth. I'm Dan. And we have special guest Dirk Elzinga. Dirk, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm an associate professor of linguistics um, at Brigham Young University. Uh, My primary research interests are the documentation of the native languages of Utah. And uh, I like to play around with language in other ways. I like to create languages and think about how language is put together. I am so excited about this episode. (laughs) I suddenly just got way more intimidated about this interview. (laughs) So in the the legendary author of constructed language fame is Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Um, We're familiar with how long it took him to create what he created. Um, How does one go about making a language? What are the rules that, that you would abide by? Um, So there are different schools of thought, believe it or not. Um, One thing I like to do when I I do projects is I I like to keep it realistic. I like to think, so, okay, this isn't a real language, but it could be. And so for that, you want to be familiar with several other languages. Um, I don't know that otherwise there are really any rules to it. Um, I like to start with a word that just kind of pops into my head. So the the current language I'm noodling around with, the word was stuben. And I thought, that's a kind of a funny word. What does that mean? I said, well, of course, it means shoe. It sounds like shoe. And so my, this language started out with that little word meaning shoe. And I thought, well, what is that N at the end of stuben? And I thought, well, maybe that's a grammatical ending of some sort. So I thought, well, what kind of a grammatical ending would that be? And it just kind of spun off from there. And so a lot of people get inspiration from looking at a language that they know fairly well. So if they studied a language in high school or in college, let's say, you know, I remember when I studied Japanese, they had this really, really cool thing that they do. And I wonder what would happen if I did that, but like even more so. And so you, you play around with these ideas that you kind of pick up from languages that you're familiar with. Even English does some really bizarre stuff, if you stop to think. Some. Oh, some. English is an extremely bizarre language. It's a lot of fun to think about. language. Yeah. Well, and I think actually one of the things to, to, that, that English points out is that there are very few languages that don't have loan words in them. And so one of the things that I've always found interesting when I'm, I'm thinking about languages and, and cultures is the way the language interacts with the culture and, and whether or not there's, you know, whether or not this is a culture in isolation or if there's uh, different, you know, if there are trade routes and things like that. And one of the things also, you know, when you're dealing with English, is that you can spot the loan words because they have uh, they have a different pattern to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like valet, that et because French is is pronounced a, unless you're British and in the 1930s when they would say valet because, and I quote from etiquette books, we are. English, not French. <laughs> well, one of the things I love about English, when you look at the loan words that we have, we have two words for every kind of meat. You know, we, mm-hmm. have, we have pork and we have 
I can't, pigs. Pig. And pig <laughs> comes from an English root and pork from a French root because mm-hmm. the poor people were the ones who dealt with the actual animal. And so we call that meat pig because it's a pig. Um, the rich people never had to actually deal with the animal. They were up in their fancy castles and rooms, and so they had their own word for it that we don't use. We don't call pork out in the thing. We don't say, you know, the, the difference between chicken Throw and out poultry. Feed the pork. Yeah. And the difference between, you know, chicken and poultry is the same thing. If you had to deal with the animal, you had a, a kind of different word taken from a different language. Well, you're also looking at the class structure yeah. in that division of, of which word is used by whom and when. Yeah, and uh, another really interesting thing. So people, they kinda, it kind of blows their mind when I tell them that the word kitchen is a borrowed word. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like yeah. something so basic in a house as the kitchen. I mean, so what did the Anglo-Saxons do? If hearths. they didn't have kitchens. They had hearths. They had hearths. They had some other things. So when you look at the, borrows, the borrowed words that we have, it tells you a lot about the history of the people who speak that way. So your example of the different words for, you know, animal on the hoof versus, you know, the, you know what's on the serving platter. You know, the word for kitchen. Um, the word church is a borrowing. And it tells you a lot about, so what were the cultural interactions among the people who were, you know, kind of trading language as well as as the anthropologists say, women and goods, you know. Our, our listeners almost certainly want to create their own languages. What are the pitfalls? What are the speed bumps that, that we can steer them around? And what are the things in your toolbox that will, uh, that will make the job easier? This um, is a huge question. It is, it is, it's a pretty big question, but um, the, the thing that everybody is really, really worried about is like, I'm just recreating English with funny words, so I have, so like take pronouns, for example. So in English, we have pronouns, I, you, he, she, it. Well, why should we have he, she, it? You know, and if you're going to make up a language, why should you have words that translate he, she, it? Why can't you just have a single pronoun? I mean, Finnish does it. They seem to get along just fine. Um, so being aware of kind of the idiosyncrasies of the language you speak natively or languages that you know well um, can help you go a long way into overcoming those kinds of biases, and yeah, it does require a little bit of familiarity with other languages. And so that, I think that by itself is going to help keep people out of trouble. <laughs> it sounds like the solution is study another language. I think so. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I bring that up cautiously, not because I'm afraid of studying another language, but because that's quite an undertaking. Well, actually, it's pretty simple these days. You can just go to Duolingo and, mm-hmm. you know, run yourself. I, I did this. I was working on a, a historical piece for Serial Box, and uh, I had a Portuguese character in there, but a Portuguese character who was speaking English, not well. And so what I did was I went and I took... You know, I did about a week of Duolingo, maybe two weeks of Duolingo. Actually, it was probably only about a week of Duolingo doing Portuguese. So I could see where the language, how the, the, the grammar structure broke, uh, worked. Because that grammatic structure is where, shows you where someone is going to break when they are speaking English. Like when I'm speaking another language, I'm going to tend to go back to my own comfortable, familiar grammatic structures. Um, one of the reasons that, that you, you hear the very stereotypical uh, thing with, um, with like when when we moved to Chicago and people were saying, "Oh, Cole, Cole, he's good name, he's good name." There's no article there because mm-hmm. there's no article in Ukrainian there. 
So it's it's that kind of thing. It can yeah. it can demonstrate, and it's not hard. It, you can take, and if you're gonna, you know, you can do it in between as a break from writing. Yeah, and I think people are, are, are daunted by the idea, oh, I've got to study a language. And it doesn't have to mean that you then are going to be able to hold conversations about philosophy and politics in that language. But, you know, go to the library, pull off the shelf a reference grammar of some language you've always been interested in. Say Welsh. And this, I, I remember that because in eighth grade, ninth grade, I was in the library and I was in that section in Welsh. I wonder what that's like. I pulled it off the shelf and thought, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and the more I looked at it, the more I studied it, I thought, this is really, really interesting. And I, I can't speak Welsh. I mean, I could sound it out if I saw it. But it gave me an idea of things that are different from English. And so it can be as superficial as just pulling a reference grammar off the shelf. You can go to Duolingo. I think that's a great resource. Um, if you've got the time and energy... Talk to people who speak other languages. Go take a class, a night class, you know, in Spanish or whatever. You have a lot of options. Yeah, one of the tools that I'll use sometimes is I'll grab a, a text that's in another language, and then I will take it to Google Translate and put it in one word at a time mm. so that I get the word-by-word word word translation. Yeah. Because uh, it changes a lot. It changes a lot. And, and you also look at it and you're like, okay, these words wind up in very different places than they do in English, mm-hmm. which is really useful to just shake things up. Can I give another tool that I use? Yes, please. Uh, the ever-changing book of names, which I've mm-hmm. talked about before yes. for coming up with names. But one of the things that's great about it is that you can set the language patterns, the patterns of the words, which sounds exist in that language mm-hmm. and uh, and which sounds pair together. Like there are there are sounds that never pair together in English and sounds that never appear in English but do in other languages. So it's a really easy way to start generating kind of these, these uh, core sounds. Mm-hmm. Like when you said Steuben, you were already not using a sound that appears in English. The well, e. well yes. no, well, it, it, all the sounds are there, but they're not in that order. Right. I mean, who okay. would think to put an N after a B in an English word? Well, you know, a geeky linguist might think about that, <laughs> you know, and I did, and I thought, that I kind of like that. And it led to a very fundamental part of the grammar. Let's uh, let's open our book of the week. All right, you were going to suggest something for us, Derek. Yeah. Um, okay. So Tolkien was already mentioned, and he was a great influence on me um, as as a ling- uh, He kind of inspired me to become a linguist. But I'm going to go a different direction. Um, the book by Ursula Le Guin, Always Coming Home. Um, I think it's just fantastic. She's imagined this post-industrial world, um, complete with you know life ways and a language. You don't see it so much in the book. All you do do get hints of it, and there's an appendix, you know, for people who like those sorts of things. Um, but it's, I mean, it's it's Ursula Le Guin. It can't be bad. And the fact that she has lavished so much of her time and attention on creating this immersive world, where she tells this very, very beautiful and moving story, along with samples of, you know, little plays, um, songs, poetry. It's 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 a remarkable book. I want to I want to talk about the the sounds that you mentioned earlier because that's I think another one of the pitfalls that an English speaking author can fall into when creating a language because English has a shocking number of vowel sounds that are phonemic meaning that they carry meaning if you take the consonants s and t you can put almost every vowel sound we have in our language in between those letters 
and it's a different word that means a different thing. Mm -hmm. And compare that to Spanish or Japanese, which have five vowel sounds and that's it. And so limiting the kinds of sounds that your created language has is a really good idea and a way to differentiate it from the one you speak. Absolutely. Um, another thing that I think is really helpful when you're talking about sounds is just to play around with your vocal track. Just make funny sounds. And believe it or not, some language out there is going to actually have used that as a speech sound. Um, I think your point is well taken, though. If you take English and just reduce the number of vowels, then you know, you're going to come up with a system that is probably in existence somewhere and that will look very un-English. So one of the languages I really like looking at, um, and it is helpful actually for my professional work, is Nahuatl, uh, classical Aztec. There are four vowels. Oh, and what are the vowels? And words, E-A-E-O. Um, e, and the O can also sometimes be pronounced as an O. There's a little bit of wiggle room it's a there. Yeah. yeah, but uh, there's there's just the four vowels. They don't have as many consonants as English, and so the words are about you know three yards long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just really <laughs> yeah. long words. It's well, really Hawaiian is that way too. Yeah, and, and to your point about just playing with your vocal tract, uh, there's a lot of sounds that English doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of vowel sounds that we that we don't use at all. And so just and and you can come up with weird consonants and things. That, so, so expanding or limiting, I think, is a good. But it looks like Beth keeps trying to say something. We no, all keep I, cutting her off. I, I, well, I was going to ask you who else besides Tolkien does good language. Um, and you answered Le Guin, yes, mm-hmm. amazingly. Um, what do you think of Carolyn Terry? Um, I haven't read any of her stuff, mm-hmm. I have to confess. Because she's the other author I know who builds languages in her books. Mm. Well, she's worth reading regardless. It, regardless, I mean, but she I really, guess I, have to go read. I think does an amazing job of building languages. Yeah. Well, so when I when I when I'm looking for you know new science fiction or fantasy to read, I'm not looking. Okay, let's see what the language is like. You know, because <laughs> to be perfectly honest, as much as I love Tolkien and as formative as he was, I get kind of annoyed. You see that elvish bit, and it's like great, and just bleep right over because it, it just yanks you right out of the story. And so I think that can be a problem sometimes. So that's not what I look for in my fiction to say, okay, how good of a linguist are they? You know, although sometimes it does kind of knock you over the head when people are making up these names that have no idea how these names are pronounced because there doesn't seem to be any system to it. That can be annoying. But it doesn't have to be a fully-fledged language, although it's kind of nice to know that authors do take the time and trouble to put one together. Yeah, well, it, did, it does bother me when I'm reading a manuscript and so clearly the invented language has absolutely no system to it. Yeah. I was just uh, looking over at, um, I, I was thinking about the, the way words evolve and the way names evolve, uh, and looking over at uh, Dan Audioman, um, who has an actual last name. But because we have Dan Wells, when we're just saying, hey, Dan, it's often Dan Audio. And that's how, you know, that's how you wind up with John Smith as opposed to John Farmer. So I think one of the things, again, when you're looking at the uh, looking, one of the reasons to develop a language, even if you have no plans on putting it into the story, is because it's going to give you better names. Mm-hmm. You know, like my name, Mary Robinette Kowal. If you go back to the roots of each of those, Mary it actually means bitter. Robinette is a little robin. And Kowal, Kowal, means smith. So I'm bitter little Robin Smith. 
That's you know always you how I thought of you. <laughs> you could build a whole short story world on that transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you could. Mm-hmm. We're we're Making out of oh, we're, well. we're out of time, and I I uh, but I I want to keep I, I want to keep going, and I'm looking around the room to see if anybody's going to stop us. Oh, we should um, stop. Quest, we are, well, here's here's a question. Um, do you have to represent this created language, your constructed language, in in its own words in the text of the story, or can you represent it in a dialect of the story language, you know, the you know, English, in the case of a story written in English, can you represent it as a dialect in a way that will convince us that there's an actual language underneath it? Oh, that's a hard question. Mm. I think one of the things that um, Star Wars did right was what they did with Yoda. Okay? Yeah. If you think about how Yoda talks, there is, in fact, I had a professor when I was an undergraduate. She uh, did this, she created this homework exercise called Yoda Syntax, where she transcribed the whole corpus that, she could, that, that, that was extant at the time of Yoda, and we had to figure out what the syntactic rules were. And believe it or not, they were consistent. And I thought that was, and, and the more I think about that, the more I think that, that is, yes, exactly. It's, you know, the, whoever did that for Yoda got it exactly right. Was, was That's Frank the way. Oz? The, he, he was, was the, the Frank Oz Well, was, he was the voice, but I'm talking well, about. Well, and he was the puppeteer. He oh, he's was, the puppeteer, okay. He's not the voice, though. He wasn't the voice. Okay. No. No. Uh, but that's a different, that's that's different, different discussion. Topic. Okay. Um, I know that we're out of time, so I want to let you guys know that when I invited Dirk to be on this podcast and I said, we want to make sure to include some resources, he sent me what is essentially a large annotated bibliography of amazing <laughs> sources you can go to, books and other resources. We will make sure that's all on the website in the liner notes so you can look up all these things. Let's have a writing prompt. All right, so one of the... One of the funnest things about language is the way we use metaphor. And one of the common metaphors for um, engaging in debate is combat. So when we talk about, um, you know, like a presidential debate, candidates debate, we're talking about, yeah, he scored points or he, he, uh, he knocked his opponent out. It's, it, we, we frame it in terms of personal combat. Come up with a metaphor for a debate that does not involve personal combat, but talks about how the exchange of of different ideas can be thought about in a different way. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. 
I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.